Välkommen till Freuds Toolbox, skolans inspirationspodd med fokus på känslor, relationer, lärande och ledarskap. Tillsammans med Kenneth Freud får du inspireras av och lära av nationellt och internationellt ledande experter på evidensbaserat lärande och ledarskap. Okay, welcome everyone. Today we will talk about how to apply neuro and cognitive science in the classroom, or actually not only that, but uh, sort of the science of learning in the classroom. In earlier episodes, we've been talking to like uh, Bob and Lisbeth uh, Bjork, Efrat Furst, uh, Dylan William, a lot of experts in the area, but more from a research point of view and then I've gotten emails from a number of teachers who has been asking for the guest of today who is uh, Craig Barton a teacher that uh, I just the last two weeks I read a book actually that I found so interesting I thought I would normally I'm a quick reader but it was so much interesting information that I what I normally do like in less than like a few hours or half a day it took me a few days because I and I couldn't stop and now people who watch a video will see but not on the podcast it's called tips for teachers 400 plus ideas to improve your teaching and that is a book that I love and I feel that you can use it in so many ways it's I would not recommend to do it my way to read it from start to the end as quick as possible Uh, but to, to pick a piece that you're interested in and you, you can read it from not one or two more more ways you can use it like a toolkit i would say but but to start uh, say welcome craig i, I just start talking it's you and someone <laughs> should be talking not me thank you no welcome and thank you very much for the invitation I'm, i'm looking forward to our conversation today and i hope reading the book didn't take you a long time because you kept falling asleep that sometimes happens when i'm uh, with my writer <laughs> no no it's 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 really it's so structured but it's uh, normally when you read books it's it could be like 500 pages but it could be like 100 key pages but now it was like 575 key pages because it <laughs> it was uh, so much in everything so so you need i couldn't read without stop and reflecting and that's why i'm happy that not everyone can can see all my it looks they would wonder how my brain looks if they would see the book but that's the way i read uh, but but the first thing i'm interested in is uh, attention when you talk to a neuroscientist a cognitive scientist they're really good at what you do if if the the students have their attention and i think you you need i mean you you need their attention but maybe without distractions uh, but what are your views on on how can you get your students to to have their attention on hopefully on the content on the subject but uh, in a classroom 
So I think attention yeah. is a key thing. You, you can't sort of apply neuron cognitive science and skip attention. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And I think it's a, it's a good place to, to start with this because yeah. as a teacher, you can you can put all your time into thinking about the best way to explain something to students. Yeah. You can put all your effort into a really engaging task for them to practice. But as you say, if you don't have their attention, it's it's all a waste of time. Yeah. And there are, there are some quite poor proxies for attention. So I think a quiet classroom, you might think, oh, that means the students are listening, but Who's to say? Yeah. Students are very good at smiling and nodding <laughs> yeah. and looking at you, but who's to say if they've got their attention? Yeah. You, you've no idea where their, where their mind goes. Yeah. So I think there's a few things we can do. Yeah. Um, I think the, the research into cognitive load theory suggests that reducing extraneous load is a good idea. So yeah. I, I watch lots of lessons, maybe... 200 lessons a month these days. And I see lots of extraneous load. I see very busy PowerPoint slides with words, objectives, dates, and so on. I think removing that is, is a good start. I I think a a good mantra is whatever your students can see is what you want them to think about. So if there's something on the board that you don't want them thinking about now, get rid of it. I, I think that helps a lot. Yeah. I think, planning out our explanations and our instructions so they're clear and concise helps. I've given lots of explanations in the past that go on for minutes and minutes and minutes, and there's no need for it. And students are are getting confused and and I'm losing them really quickly. I think that helps. I think making students aware of just how little we can hold in our working memories at any one time. time. Yeah. And just making them aware that if they dedicate some of their finite attention to something else, it's just yeah. going to make it so much harder for them to understand what we're talking about at the moment. So I think informing students helps. But I think the single biggest thing that teachers can do, and this is this is relatively new for me. And yeah. um, I spoke to a guy in my podcast called uh, Pritesh Rechura, and he, he talks about what he calls high frequency checks for listening. Yeah. And it's very different. A check for listening is very different from a check for understanding. Yeah. So a check for understanding would be, I explain something to my students yeah, yeah. and then I see if they've understood it by seeing if they can transfer it to a different context. Yeah, yeah. So as a maths teacher, I multiply out a bracket and then I check they can understand that by asking my students to multiply out a different bracket. Yeah. yeah. And that's fine. But the problem is, if you don't have your students' attention whilst yeah, you're doing the yeah. explanation, yeah, and they then go ahead to try it themselves, if they yeah. fail, you don't know whether it's because, number one, they can't do it, or number yeah. two, they weren't listening in the first place. Yeah. So what you can do is you can do these high-frequency checks for listening. So that would be every step in an explanation you take, you yeah. pause, and you get students <laughs> to repeat that step back to you. And you yeah. can either cold-call individual students Or what I really like doing at the moment is call and respond. So I'll say the first half of a statement and all my students will in unison chant back the second half of the statement. Then you need attention to to make it. And yeah, and this is the key point because if a student can't answer my question when I cold call or can't participate in the choral response, the only possible reason is because they haven't been listening. It can't be because they've not understood because I'm not testing their understanding. I'm simply saying... Can you repeat what I've said back to me? And it's really interesting. This Pritesh has a really interesting graph on this. He says, if you imagine a, an axis yeah. and on the vertical axis, you've got attention, student attention. Yeah. And on the horizontal axis, you've got time. 
Pritesh says, as soon as you start giving an explanation, attention's dropping, 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 yeah, dropping, yeah. dropping, 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 until you get to the point where you want to check students' understanding, and it's almost too late because you've, you've lost students along the way. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you fill your explanations with these high-frequency checks for listening, so perhaps every 10 seconds, every 20 seconds, you're asking a question, it forces that attention yeah, to stay yeah. nice and high up on the y-axis, so therefore students can take in more. Can so I think, that, yeah. Sorry, you go, you go. Yeah, could you use it also like in the beginning of a lesson? It could be something has happened during recess, and they are the the students are their mind are something totally else, and then sort of if they feel something really strong, that will sort of rule what they are thinking of. And then you need to break that to get, get their attention or thinking to what you want. I think so. Absolutely. Yeah, so yeah. I think when I think about attention these days, I think about those three things. I think of what can I do as a teacher to reduce extraneous cognitive load? Yeah. How can I make my students aware of how limited their attention is? And then how can I add these checks for listening into all my explanations and instructions just yeah. to try and sustain students' attention. And I think those three things can make a big difference. Yeah, that's smart. But then you have their attention, and I have a talk, had a talk like quite recently with uh, with uh, John Hattie, and he, he talks a lot. He says, mm, we need to make our students think more. We need to promote thinking in our classrooms as a key for, for learning. And... Uh, I, I think that is connected. If you get their attention, you need to make them think, uh, but it would be more, you write a lot in your book as well. You can make uh, students think, but about what? Uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting. This I've, I've, I've had, I've, I've done a lot of thinking about what students are thinking about over there. Yeah. Um, as we say, I think attention is is the, the key part. Let's get as yeah. much attention you, on you it as possible. You need that as a base. Yeah. You have to have that. You have to yeah. have that. Yeah. And then you, I, I think you've got to be careful. You um, yeah. you obviously want students thinking about the the lesson, the big idea yeah. that you're talking yeah. about. But what we've also got to remember is, is when we introduce a new idea to students, it is new to them. It's yeah. quite overwhelming. It's quite daunting, and. A change I've made in the last 12 months, and I've been experimenting with this, and it sounds a bit strange when I first say it, is I I used to ask my students a lot, things like, um, has anybody got any questions? Or is anybody confused by this? And does this make sense? And the problem with questions like that is they're almost inviting students to be confused because yeah. it gives students a moment to think, oh, do I actually understand that? And so on. Whereas... In mathematics, yeah. often true understanding only comes once you've practiced quite a few things, once you've experienced quite a few things. Yeah. And I do, again, I don't know if the, I can't speak for other subjects, but what I do now is I say to students, I'll, I'll do my work to example, and I often yeah, use yeah. a thing called silent teacher where I'll present it in silence and so on. And at the end of it, I won't say, has anybody got any questions or is anybody confused? I'll just say, just have a go at this one on your own. And what you find often is, is the doing, the practice helps students realize, actually, I knew more of this than I thought I did. Mm. Whereas my teaching in the past, I'd almost be scared to let my students try something unless I was really confident that they fully understood every single bit of it. But that yeah. understanding often comes later on. It may come 10 minutes later. It may come an hour later. It may come a year later. 
Yeah. But that doesn't mean students can't get on with the practice because oh, in mathematics, sure. often the practice is that path towards that understanding. Yeah, yeah. Dan Willingham talks about inflexible and flexible knowledge. Sometimes you need that inflexibility. You need yeah. this almost kind of, you know, I can only do it in these certain circumstances in order for you to appreciate the bigger picture and see the connections. So yeah, I'm, I'm really careful with what my students are thinking about, but I'm also careful not to expect too much understanding too soon because yeah. I know that that understanding can come later. And that's very different to how I used to teach. Yeah. But for instance, some teachers could have, uh, they could struggle with getting their students' attention and they, they might try to sort of be fun and do really fun stuff in the classroom. And that is also sort of a risk right it's a big it's a big risk and i've been there i've done yeah. that for years and years so i i in my first book how wish i taught maths i talked yeah. i i talked about a lesson i taught on fractions which involved cutting up a cake called a swiss yeah. roll in, in england i don't know if you have swiss rolls but it was it was a fun lesson the students were smiling they were laughing but they learned yeah. almost nothing the the, the yeah. thing they were thinking about was not fractions they were thinking about this cake or the cream <laughs> yeah. on their faces and, yeah. and so yeah. on and once you see that once and you're aware, and again, this is Dan Willingham. Dan Willingham says the most important question a teacher can ask themselves when they're planning a lesson is what are my students going to be thinking about? Yeah. In my case, they were thinking yeah. about the cake, not, not the fractions. And you see this all the time. So um, I think in my tips for teachers book, I talk about a lesson that uh, another teacher shared with me where she was trying to teach her students the surface area of a sphere and yeah, she used an yeah, orange. Yeah, I remember that example. Yeah, yeah. and it's it's a great it's, it's it's a great idea. You get this orange, you yeah. peel the orange, yeah. and you show the students that this orange fits however many circles it fits, yeah. and that's the area of the the, the surface area of the sphere. Yeah. But the problem is, of course, there's a lot of very distracting features going on there. You've got this yeah. big orange as you're peeling it; bits are spraying everywhere. Yeah. You've got, it doesn't form a perfect circle. There's little bits, you know, going off left, right, and yeah. center. So in the end, you provide a very memorable experience for the students, but yeah. what are they going to remember? Yeah. They're going They're to remember the what concept. they thought about. And this is, yeah. So you've got to be very, very careful. And yeah. that doesn't mean that you can't have fun. It doesn't mean yeah. that you can't provide these experiences for students. Yeah. But I think having that in your mind, what yeah. are my students yeah. likely to be thinking about? Probably very important. I, yeah, I think so. I think yeah. it. I, I think it, it can really make you consider some of the kind of activities and tasks that you may do yeah. with students. I think also like about attention, the, the science says if emotionally charged events uh, makes you remember it much more exact and for longer time, and then you so of, of course you need to make it be the right moments. Then yeah. exactly right. It's difficult to do, but yeah, yeah, difficult to do. Yeah. We got a little bit into working memory. Uh, I mean, it's very limited, and but it could be really different a lot between students. But still, uh, in the beginning, we talked about distractions. How could we sort of, since it is limited, what can we do sort of to reduce load, sort of to, to make the working memory be used only for what you want it to be used for? Do you have yeah, sort of the best a... of Craig Barton in, in that respect? <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's it's interesting this because the, the, there are obviously many cri critics of cognitive load theory. Yeah. And some of the criticisms are we can't measure working memory capacity. It's a very abstract yeah. concept, so it's, it's completely useless. Yeah. 
And also a big criticism is, and I think this is a misreading of, of Sweller's work, is that our aim is to reduce cognitive load. But of course it's yeah, not. No, no, no. Use it for the right purpose. Yeah, Absolutely. We want to reduce the extraneous, the yeah. redundant cognitive load. But the only reason we want to reduce that is so we leave more capacity for students to think about the things that are going to help them learn, help inspire them about, about the big idea. So I think that's always the first place is to think, what about my classroom environment? What yeah. about my explanations? What is it yeah. that could be taking my students' attention away from the big idea? And as yeah. I say, the most obvious thing is to think about the board and the, the, the kind of class. And I talk yeah. a lot in my first book about classroom displays. These big, bright, yeah. colorful displays are great. But if students' attention is on these displays, when you're trying to talk to them about fractions, then it's going to be a bit problematic. Um, again, the cognitive load theory literature is full of things like a really obvious one, don't read out what's on your slide um, because yeah. the students are trying to read it and listen at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's problematic. Yeah. That's the redundancy effect. You've got split attention effect where you've got, you know, you've got an image here, you've got words down here. All these little things yeah. sound little on their own, but you start to piece those together and you start yeah. to create an environment that's that's really conducive for, for students giving, you know, pain, yeah. pain sufficient, sufficient attention. I think that works well. Yeah. The other thing that I've personally started doing in, in my teaching to help students get the most out of their attention is the way I do worked examples. And I've been yeah. playing around with this for about 10 years now. My worked examples used to be very much, here's the first line of working. What does everybody think I'm going to do next? Ben, yeah. what do you think? Anna, what do you think? And so on. And it, yeah. I just think that's really confusing often for students. Well, we're asking them to, to, to guess things that they don't really yeah, know yeah, and, yeah. Sometimes a yeah. right answer comes, sometimes a wrong answer comes, and yeah. it takes a long, long time. Yeah. So what I do now with my worked examples, and I've, I use this in maths, I've seen this work also in science, yeah. I can't speak for any of the subjects, but I, I do my first example in complete silence. My students don't write anything, they don't speak, they just watch. And I do it in silence from start yeah. to finish, and I pause at critical points. And every time I pause and take my pen from the board or step back, I tell my students, this is the point where you think, what's he just done? What's he going to do next? You don't have to tell anybody. You don't have to write it down. Just start to make these connections. What has he just done? What's he going to do next? And then once I've done that from start to finish, I'll then go back over the example and I'll start adding my explanations. But I'll also do what we talked about um, a few moments ago is I'll check my students are listening. So I'll say, the first step is I do the three outside the brackets multiplied by the yeah. X inside the brackets. Ben, what's the first step that I do? Everybody, what's the first step that I do? So I check I've got my students' attention. Yeah. Are they listening to and me? And you check both for attention and understanding. Exactly right. Yeah. And then once I've done that, once I've checked that they're listening to me, I can then say, okay, on the right-hand side of the board, here's a similar example for you to try on your mini whiteboards. When you've got it, three, two, one, show me so that I've got evidence of the, all my students' understanding as opposed to just one or two. So I think, again, the, the cognitive load theory talks a lot about the power of worked examples. What yeah. I've tried to do over the last 10 years is to find a process that enables my students to pay full attention to me, 
gives me valuable data at the different points in the process where I might be losing my students mm. and hopefully puts them on that path to understanding. So I think that's something we can really do with, with working memory capacity. Think about yeah. our explanations and our modeling. Yeah. But you're also right about using like a visualizer, do it more like the students doing themselves. If you compare, how do you do it? When you introduce something, do you prefer to do it on the whiteboard or when you start... Or, you start on the whiteboard and then when you will later in the lesson you will sort of show an an example on the same same thing as the students are working on yeah it's it's a re- it's a really good question so this is something i've changed my mind on over the last few years so i, I used to always do everything on me stood up on yeah. the on the whiteboard because yeah. it was just the way i'd always done it i'd never thought of any other way and it was only through conversations with students where they pointed out that their book doesn't look like that. So their book has got these little squares in there. My yeah. whiteboard doesn't have that. <laughs> no. They've got they've got a pen. I've yeah. got this fancy digital pen that can change <laughs> yeah. colors just by clicking on it. Uh, they've got an actual ruler. I've got a virtual ruler. Yeah. And it's all these things that, they're, that are creating what I call a disconnect, a disconnect yeah. between what I'm doing at the board and what I'm expecting my students yeah. to do in their books. So what I tend to do these days is, is one of two things. Um, if there's a visualizer in the classroom, I'll yep. have an exercise book exactly like my students' exercise book. Yep. And I'll do my modeling there using the same book they're going to be using, using the same rulers they're going to be using, the same pens they're going to be using. So I convey the message, what I'm doing at the front, you can do yourself in your book. Yeah. I think that helps. Yeah, and the other thing I'll do is when I use technology, um, often I'll use an iPad um, yep. to, to write, but I'll make my screen on the board completely clutter-free. So there's no... Yeah toolbar there's nothing like that every distractions squ- is taken away then. everything gone yeah. my background will be square paper i'll recreate square paper just like my students square paper yeah. and i'll model that way but anytime i need to do anything involving measuring or constructing i've got to go back under that visualizer because yeah i, I can't demonstrate how to measure an angle if i'm not using the exact same equipment the same equipment yeah that's, and that's, that's, that's I think smart. that's yeah, it's yeah. it's really important. And there's other advantages of this. If you have a an exercise book yeah. that you're going to use for modeling, you can put the left hand page under the visualizer, but the right hand page you can see it, but your students can't. And that means that you can do lots of things on there. Yeah. You can have written the example out in full yeah. so you can refer to it if it's a tricky example. Yeah. You can write down, let's say, three or four questions you want to ask the students. It's essentially yeah. your notes that you've got there. And if you do this all the time, by by the end of the year, you've got a yeah. book full of the examples that you used in class. You can write little reflection yeah. points yeah. for yourself. You can use that next year. You can give it, print it out for a photocopy for a student who missed a lesson. It's become such a powerful resource, far more so than the PowerPoint files and things that I, I used to use for, for, for many yeah. years. So yeah, under the visualizer, I think it's really powerful. Yeah, sounds like a really good, smart idea. Yeah. Uh, but if we're talking about the working memory again, I mean, it's you can train it to some extent. It varies a lot, but quite a lot of students have really, really small working memory. So what can you do sort of to, if you can't make it bigger, you take away all the distractions and still... It's so small, so they can't do any complex problem solving. What can you do to compensate for that then? Yeah, and the the thing is, there's an easy answer to this. It's no, the obvious I know, answer, I know, but it's but it's hard. It's hard to yeah, it's yeah. it's hard to do. This is this yeah. is the problem. So, yeah. you're firstly, you're absolutely right. As far as I'm aware, there's very little evidence to suggest that we can 
improve yeah, working improve. memory yeah, capacity. It's... Certainly in the general cases, you can, you know, train students yeah, to Yeah, yeah to some extent, thing. but not so much. But so not you need to have other strategies. You somehow. need other strategies. Yeah. Absolutely right. So in maths, as I say, the answer is simple, but the, the enactment of it is difficult. And, and that is students have, you've got to give students as much knowledge as possible that they can draw upon to do the complex problems. So again, this is where to take a really simple example, if you're expecting students to solve a really complicated worded problem (laughs) where they've got to fight, almost fight their way through all these, these words, these complicated words, figure out what the surface structure is, figure out what the deep structure is, and then do the calculations with it. That's going to be really overwhelming, but if your students are really fluent in their times table facts, their addition um, capabilities, if you've broken down these words before and these words are now really familiar to students, if they've got a strategy up their sleeve to solve worded problems, whatever it may be, underlining keywords or whatever it is, then all of a sudden, instead of trying to do all of this in working memory, they're pulling things from long-term memory. They're pulling the meaning of that word from long-term memory. They're pulling that multiplication fact from long-term memory. They're pulling a strategy from long-term memory. So now the burden on working memory isn't so much. The problem comes when we try and cut out all that stuff and think, oh, we don't need to do that. It's okay. We'll we'll just dive straight into this problem and we'll figure everything out. And a lot of students just simply can't come. Yeah, then the one with the big memory can do it and the absolutely other right yeah. and there's one other place i see this play out a lot so i i've been in a school uh, last week and, and the week before and i saw yeah. two instances of this and that's <clears throat> where a teacher's about to teach a new idea to students mm-hmm. and what the teacher does is they assume that all the knowledge that students have met before that they need for this new idea students will remember so mm-hmm. one example was fractions yeah. adding fractions yeah. So last less the previous lesson, the teacher had taught the students how to simplify fractions and do equivalent fractions. So the teacher thought, well, we did that last lesson, so we don't need to worry about that. And then to add fractions, students need to know lowest common denominator. Yep. Well, they did that last year. They were good at it then, so it'll all be fine. Yeah. But of course, what happened was the teacher dived into adding fractions, and these students in their working memories are trying to follow this new process that they've never seen before. Mm, Whilst at the same time, try to remember how to simplify fractions, equivalent fractions, lowest common denominator. And it's just overwhelming. They can't do it. So I think anytime we're about to teach a new idea, it's so important not to assume anything and test every piece of related knowledge that students have encountered in the past that's going to help them with this new idea. Because one of two things is going to happen. Yeah. You're going to ask the kids a question and they're going to be able to do it, in which case it takes about five seconds. The kids feel good. They get a feeling of success. No problem there. Or you're going to ask the question and it turns out half the students are really confused by it. Well, it's a good job you asked it because if you didn't, that's only going to cause problems 10 minutes later when you do the new idea and it's going to be much more difficult to to unpick. So I think I, I think every teacher in the world knows it's a good i knows it's a good idea to check students' prerequisite knowledge. <laughs> yeah, but I don't. Th- I'm not so that sure. That doesn't every mean teacher that they are the doing it all the time. Does it? Yeah. yeah does yeah. it to the extent that I possibly think it needs doing? Yeah, but connected to that, in your book, you write a lot about uh, uh, content versus uh, routines and procedures. Uh, I think that is sort of in the same area. Uh, 
if you yeah, sort it... of use uh, your working memory towards learn how to do something instead of of the content can you what's yeah. your take on that yeah it's 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 i'm glad you brought this up it's it's a really important point so my teaching used to be every lesson was different yeah, it was a different task for this, different activity yeah. for this. I think if, if you're if you're this. afraid, if you're sort of you don't own your classroom and you want the attention of your students and you want to be fun, you want to do new. It, it should exactly. be variation and exactly. And the yeah. idea, you know, if if everything yeah. looks the same, it's boring and you yeah. lose engagement and so on. But again, research into this is is really really clear. Students' attention's finite. Yeah. Um, if we break it down, if we give them a task, there's two things they could be thinking about. One is the structure of the activity, yeah. the kind of what do I need to do? How do I do this? And so on. And the other is the content, the actual, yeah. in my case, the mathematics of the activity. Yeah. Now, only one of those is going to contribute to learning and it's thinking about the mathematics. So if we keep chopping and changing different things yeah. every time yeah. students have to dedicate more of their attention to st the structure of things and less yeah. of their attention yeah. to actually engaging with the content of it yeah. so this has led me to do a few things so firstly as i described just a few moments ago my worked example process always looks the same yeah always silent teacher always narration afterwards yeah. followed by a mini whiteboard check it's always yeah. the same the start of my lesson is a retrieval starter that always looks the same. It's always four questions. It's always set out in a grid. Students always write their answers in their book and then put their answers on their mini whiteboard when we go through it. Always the same. My homeworks always look the same. There's always a retrieval section, yeah. a topic section, and a prerequisite check for the upcoming topic section. Mm -hmm. Always look exactly the same. Always the same number of questions. Yeah. And I try and develop a high, what I call a high value yeah. set of activity structures. So things that I can repeat topic after topic after topic yeah. so that my students, again, can think less about the structure and more about the content. Yeah. So I use Venn diagrams a lot because I find them a very yeah. versatile structure that I can yeah. use for fractions, ratio, yeah. averages, whatever it may be. Um, diagnostic questions i'll use that same structure again and again yeah. so that the first time we do it of course my students are going to be thinking more about the structure because it's new yeah of but course the second time yeah. third time tenth time twentieth time yeah they can snap out of that and all their attention can go on the content so yeah i, yeah, I think routines are i think are, are quite underrated i think yeah um, it's in, in important lessons. i think it's yeah, a real powerful yeah. thing and i think this is you can do in in any subject it's not sort of subject specific it's uh, it goes for the whole learning system the school system I think so I yeah think so i think in 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 your book tips for teachers 400 plus ideas to improve your teaching you have so many so many so many tips but i, I also think you can look from it from the the science of learning. You can also look at it from from formative assessment and the five key principles. And then you focus, I think, a lot of sort of the principle to know where the students are to adapt your teaching, check for understanding. Yeah. But I, I like sort of that when you have tips for check for understanding, it's very seldom only check for understanding. It's also to promote thinking. But... If you should give sort of advice on on this, sort of question A is, is about this. Question B is, do you think this is the most important? If you look at formative assessment, 
you you focus on the other principles as well, but it's sort of a large focus on on that key principle. I, I can yeah. read, uh, and my impression only, I or 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 maybe you think it's sort of everyone does this. You need to do more of this. I don't know. Yeah, it's, I, I think a lot about checking for understanding. So yeah. I've, I've, I'll, I'll say a few things about this. I don't yeah. know if it'll make sense, but um, hopefully, hopefully it answers your question. So the first biggest change I've made when it comes from checking for understanding is that where possible, we want to get responses from all students yeah. instead of one or two. And that simple change makes a world of difference. Yeah. Now, in mathematics, um, mini white the mini whiteboard would be the best way to do. It. I don't know of any more efficient way to get responses mm -hmm. from all students than using mini whiteboards. In science, modern foreign languages works really well. In in humanity subjects like English and history, yeah, need to think a bit more carefully about it. But I've seen lots of skilled teachers being able to find ways to collect knowledge on yeah, on, yeah. Um, on mini whiteboards. If you don't do that, then something like diagnostic questions, voting with ABCD cards can yeah. be a way to get all students uh, responding. But that's the first thing. I think as a good principle, if you if you pick three or four points in your lesson that feel like yeah. really important points, how can you engineer a way to get responses from all your students yeah. versus yeah. one or two? Because if you just ask one or two students, yeah. It's a big you risk. Yeah. You've no idea. No. It's a bit if they volunteer with their hand up, it's a yeah. big problem yeah. because it's your confident, um, highest attaining students who are gonna volunteer. Yeah. If you cold call, it's better, but still you're hearing from one or two students out yeah. of 25, 30. And then you say to your kids, everybody happy with that? And of course the kids nod along <laughs> yeah. and say, Yeah, because no student ever says, No, actually, I I, I don't get it. Whereas if you hear from all your students, you've got yeah. a much more reliable set of yeah. data. So that's principle one, try and get mass participation yeah. where possible. And that solves a hell of a lot of um, a hell of yeah. a lot of problems. And um, principle two is how you then respond to it. Because what, what yeah. I see a lot with um, checking for understanding yeah. is all the emphasis goes into the check. Yeah, but and then if you, you don't respond it, yeah. to it, you're wasting yeah. your time. So, yeah. so I saw a lesson. This was really interesting. I saw a lesson a couple of weeks ago, and the teacher asked a really good question. It was a diagnostic question. Yeah, the correct answer was A. Yeah, about half the kids held up A, half the kids held up B, and the teacher froze because they'd not anticipated this. And in the end, they said, "Yeah, yeah. A is the correct answer," and moved on. And I was just thinking that is such a good opportunity to do something quite interesting. Yeah. So you could either, a couple of options, you could ask the child who's voted A, yep. just pick one of them, tell me your reason. Ask a child who voted B, tell me your yep. reason. Yep. And then ask the kids to re-vote. That's quite a nice response. Or my favorite, whenever you get a spread like that, is you say to the kids, okay, we've got three different answers around the room here. Let me write them on the board. Turn to the person next to you. What do you think the answer is and why? Yep. What do they think the answer is and why? If you disagree, have an argument about it. Yeah. If you agree, where do you think the wrong answers are coming from? Yeah. Why Why do people think it's 17 and you think it's 23 or whatever it is? But responding in that way is so, so, so important because if you don't respond, yeah. there's no point you're doing the check for yeah. understanding in the first place. And the class. students will get less interested in in showing the answer if you don't Absolutely. use it to anything. Yeah. Absolutely. And also mistakes become a bigger problem then yeah. because if the students realize you're only interested in the right answer, yeah. then they start wanting to hide mistakes and so on. Whereas 
If you celebrate the mistakes and use that as a key teaching point, then students realize why they're answering this question in the first place. So that's principle. So principle one is get mass participation. Principle two is respond to that check. But the principle everyone forgets, everyone forgets because it's the most annoying one is let's say, for example, you have, you've asked a question, everyone's responded. Half the kids have got it right. Half the kids have got it wrong. Yeah. You've grabbed the mini whiteboards off the kids. You've had a good discussion about it. You've re-voted. Everybody's now got it right. What the vast majority of teachers do, including me, is they move on there. They'd say, everybody happy with that and move on. But of course, two minutes ago, half the kids didn't have a clue what was going on. So if you don't end your response with a second check for understanding, you are running a big, big risk that everything that's just happened in the last few minutes was a waste of time. It's mm. that second check for understanding that's going to give you evidence that your intervention there has been effective. And in mm. maths, it's so easy. You just change a mm. number. All right. I asked yep. you to simplify whatever, 10 over 15. What happens if it was 14 over 21? Do that on your mini whiteboard. Yeah. Or let me change this seven to an eight. What? How does that change your answer? In other subjects, it's, it's much harder because you've got to think of another question, a related question. In maths, there's no excuse not to do it. It's so easy but it's so important. And then yeah. if, if everyone can answer your check for understanding, your second check, well, fingers crossed, they're on the path to understanding. Of course, you're going to have to recheck it again, you know, a week's time, yeah, two weeks' yeah. time. But if they can't get that second check for understanding right, you know that whatever explanation you did, it, it hasn't worked. Yeah. So in that circumstance, I'd say to the kids, okay, I can see we're a bit confused here. It's probably my fault. Yeah. We'll come back to this next lesson when we've got a bit more time. But at least you've got evidence. Whereas if your check for understanding your response ends with, is everybody happy with that? God knows. God only knows if they are. (laughs) It's such an important, yeah. yeah, It's such an important part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. It's so, so much evidence also for using the whiteboards. And I think in, in, in any subject, one thing I thought about when I read your book was uh, you like have uh, the students working in pairs and, and sort of up to, groups to small groups up to up to three you're writing about uh, i also visited sort of a lot of classrooms all over the world and when i see a lot of diversity in the classrooms i often I, i've never seen teachers really managing diversity excellent without to some extent using some sort of station teaching of course it could be stations with three at uh, each group but I'm interested in what your thoughts about sort of station teaching as a tool. Yeah, it's the whole group thing is yeah. is really really interesting. So I'll yeah, just share I a agree. few. I'll share a, f- a few thoughts on this, and yeah. then feel free to press me again if I if I haven't <laughs> yeah. answered the question. Yeah. So I am very much a group work skeptic. As soon yeah. as we start talking groups of four, five, and six, I, I've never been a good enough teacher to make that work. No. There's always been one or two members of the group who are doing all the work, yeah. two or three members of the group who are just yeah. sitting there, yeah. sitting there having a rest. And I've always found that an incredibly frustrating yeah. thing. Paired work for me, I think is, is really, really important. I think two is a decent number where yeah. you've um, both parties can contribute yeah. Yeah. and so on. I think there's some really good times you can use paired work. So I mentioned one before, yeah. if if the understanding in the classroom is mixed, I think writing up the two different answers <clears throat> or three answers that people yeah, are going for yeah. and then saying to 
the students discuss in pairs, I think it's a really good use of it. Yeah. Another good use is, um, and I see this a lot, a teacher asks a question, whatever it is, nobody answers. The teacher says, come on, somebody must know. Nobody answers. Yeah, yeah. If you then say, okay, turn and discuss it with your partner. Yeah. After that 30 seconds, if you then say, okay, does anybody know? Almost all the time, somebody's then ready to have a go because that paired discussion allows students to rehearse yeah, yeah, in a yeah. safer environment yeah, yeah. than in front of, you know, 30 yeah. of their, their, their peers or whatever. So I've always been a big, big fan of paired discussions. Yeah. So I, I read uh, Peter Lillehall's Building Thinking um, for, for Classrooms and it flipping out. I, I don't know if I don't know if you if you've read it yourself, but whoa. So about 50% of it I thought I do not agree with this one little bit. And then about 50% of it I thought that's really interesting. And, yeah. and in that book, Peter talks about three being the optimal number for group size. Yeah. yeah. Because any more than three, you get subgroups forming. Any less yeah. than three, you don't have this divergence of viewpoints yeah. and so on. So I've been doing a bit of experiments with um, with groups of three. Yeah. I'm still a fan of the paired. I think just logistically, quick turn to your neighbor. I just yeah. is always going to be my kind of fallback for that. Yeah. But one other thing I will say, and this this has been a real kind of game changer for me. And this is whether you're using paired work or group work. Yeah. And this goes back to your question about diversity um, yeah. in, in the classroom. You're always going to have some students who finish before other kids, yeah. some students who are a lot slower and so yeah, on. Yeah. And the, the the tendency for teachers is to try and differentiate. So to think, okay, yeah. if you finish, if you've got this yeah. question right, here's another challenge for you. Here's another challenge. Okay, yeah. you, you're struggling with this. So yeah. here's, a, here's an easier challenge. Here's an easy challenge. Yeah. The problem with that is it's quite hard to manage logistically because yeah, you've got to have all these different questions up your sleeve. Yeah. Then you've got to assess the understanding of those questions. It becomes really <clears throat> problematic yeah. really, really quickly. Yeah. So what I find works more effective than that, and I got this off a guy called Sammy Kempner, who's a maths teacher in the UK who came on my podcast. And he's a big group work fan. And he says, if you want to get group work to, to be effective, the most important thing is the message kids need to hear is that helping another student is the hardest job in this classroom. Yeah. Helping somebody else understand yeah. is a hard, and we all know yeah. that because that's yeah. why, you know, we're paid as teachers because it's really, really hard yeah. Yeah. To, to help somebody who doesn't understand something. Yeah. So there's two parts to this. First, kids have got to realize that's the message. Yeah. So, Okay, it's one thing you understand how to do this. That's yeah. great. But here's the challenge. Help your mate understand who you're sat yeah. next to. Yeah. to help, help her understand how to do it. That's the hard bit. So part one is you've got to get that message to the kids. Yeah, true. Part two is the controversial bit. This is this is the, the dodgy bit. Part two is you've got to hold the kids to account. So yeah. what Sammy does, this is this is great, this. So let's say the kids are working in a group of three or four. And they've been working on a, on a set of problems. Yeah. What Sammy does is he asks a student in the group and he picks the student who he thinks is least likely to give him the right answer. Yeah. So maybe it's the lowest attaining student. Maybe it's a student who typically doesn't listen, or maybe it's a student who missed the last lesson, something like that. Yeah, he picks yeah, yeah. a student and he asks them a question to test their understanding. Yeah. And if they can't answer that question, they're not in trouble but the rest of the group yeah, the is group. in trouble yeah. because they they've let them down. Yeah. And sometimes Sammy says the person, the kid who they've asked the question, will say, no, 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 sorry, sir. It's my fault. And Sammy will say, no, no, it's not your fault. 
it's Ben's fault and Anna's fault and Emma's fault because they haven't helped you understand this. So you three, you're all staying back for 10 minutes during break time because that's your punishment. So he punishes the kids if mm. someone in their group can't answer mm. the question. But the other side of that is if when he asks that child a question and they get it right, yeah. they don't get the praise. Everyone in the group gets the praise yeah. because the reason that child can get it right is because the group's <clears throat> been working together and so on. Yeah, yeah. Now, the first time you try this, it's a disaster. Yeah. Parents are on the phone complaining. Uh, yeah, nobody yeah, nobody likes it. It's horrible. Yeah. It's horrible. But what about the fifth time you do it? What about the tenth time you do it? Now you've got a culture in the classroom where as soon as I finish my work, I'm now going to turn to my partner and I'm yeah, going to say, help. can I help you with anything? Yeah. Because I know if I don't, yeah. I'm going to be in trouble. And now all your differentiation problems are solved. Yeah. yeah. Because you don't have to provide the extra task. You don't even have to provide the extra support because you've now got a group of students yeah. who are all working together and all in it together. Yeah. Now, if you can make that work, yeah. I think that's where paired work and group work goes to the next yeah. level. Yeah, when it But works, it's, it's, hard. it's great. And it's then you also find sort of a how for a key principle again in formative assessment and students helping students absolutely succeed. Right. Yeah. But you need but, that but, that incentive's got to be there. Yeah. Incentive's got to be there. But I, I go back to my my question about station teaching that could be like only individual work as well. Just it's a way to you can work with a small group of students that you interact with and you have some automatic activities or based on digital things. In the other ones, yeah, you use that to some extent, or not? a little, a little. A little I, yeah. I find it quite difficult. I will yeah. sometimes. I will. Um, I, I one one instances. I'll ask a diagnostic question. Yeah. Um, and if there's a group of students who've got it right and can yeah. explain it well, then I'll set them a challenge based on that question. So I may yeah. set them a challenge which would be, okay, you know the correct answer is A. Can you write me a reason why somebody might choose B? Yeah. And then can you change the question as little as possible to make C the correct answer? So they'll yeah. be working on that whilst I dedicate my attention to the rest of the class. Yeah. Now that yeah. could be five students. It could be 20 students. Yeah. But my job will always be to support the students whose understanding isn't quite where it needs to be. Yeah. And I'll just be really careful with that task that I set the other students because I don't want that to confuse them. I don't want to have to assess that. No. I also don't want it to be a different task every time, going back to what we talked yeah, about yeah, before. True. I want it to be yeah. this high-value task uh, activity yeah. structure. So I'll experiment with that, but I'll just tell yeah. you a quick story. Yeah. So in, in, in the UK, um, some schools, well, most schools will teach students in, in sets of attainment levels in, in yeah. high school, but mixed attainment teaching will be, it'll be popular as well. Um, So mixed attainment teaching, I've I've always found really, really challenging, really yeah. challenging. Um, I think it's something you need a lot of training in, a lot of support in. Yeah, and yeah. I don't think I'm as good in a good enough teacher to be able to, to do it effectively. So I interviewed a teacher on my podcast who's one of the UK's leading proponents of mixed attainment teaching. This is about four years ago. And yeah. Helen Hindle, she's called. And she described this lesson. And I'd never heard anything like it. So it was a year seven lesson. So these kids were 11 years old. Yeah. And they were doing sequences. And she said, on one table, we could have a child who can't count. Yeah. So she'd be working with him on basic counting. Yeah. And on the next table, we've got a child who's doing quadratic sequences with negative numbers and doing proofs and all this. And I just thought, I don't know. I don't know how you do this. I don't know how you differentiate to that 
effect to that to that magnitude. Now, obviously, in any classroom, you're going to have a wide range of um, achievement levels, and you're going to yeah. need to be aware of that and differentiate. But when you've got things that extreme, I just think that's that's incredibly challenging. It still wouldn't yeah, change yeah. any of my techniques. I'd yeah. still need to assess understanding in the same way. I'd still yeah. need to get that data yeah, for, sure. from all yeah. the kids. I'd still need to do everything I talk about. I just think it's a lot harder. I think the response becomes a lot harder. That's all. Yeah, yeah. In your book, you also write about something you call the the holy trinity. Uh, what what is that? Yeah, I need to need to need to remember this myself now. So, I, <laughs> so yeah, so um, so again, this is something I've I've I've, I've looked to develop a, a little bit. So, yeah, in the in the, in the in in England, we have a thing that's often called think pair share. Yeah, um, and yeah. It's, it's quite a nice quite a nice kind of yeah. phrase yeah. because it 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 kind of sums up quite a powerful way of teaching, yeah. which is yeah. you ask students a question. You first give them an opportunity to think independently on their own. Yeah. You then ask them to discuss their thoughts with their partner. Yeah. And then you call upon different students to share their thoughts with the rest yeah. of the class. Now, often neither none of those three things happen. So what what typically happens is a teacher asks a question, and in less than a second they call upon a student to give an answer. So the kid, the student doesn't have enough thinking time. No. Or what often often happens as well is a teacher asks a question and immediately says, discuss it with the person next to you. Yeah. And the problem you've got there is your highest attaining student yeah, just dominates the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. They, and the other student hasn't had time to think about it. And they're just sat there on the receiving end of all this. All this. It's just, it just yeah. doesn't work. No. So what I've tried to do now is my kind of take on think pair yeah. share is first I give the I ask a question, I give the students thinking time and I ask them to write down their working out and anything they're thinking about on their mini whiteboards, yeah. not to show me, but for the next stage of the process. So the first thing they do is they write down on their mini whiteboards. Maybe I'll get them to hold it up just so I can get a sense of a checking for effort. Who's yeah, actually yeah. done something. But then what I'll say is, right, turn to your partner, put your mini whiteboards between you so you can both see each other's. And I want the person closest to the door to talk through their answer and their reasoning on their mini whiteboard. Yeah. And then I want the other student to talk through their thinking and their reasoning on their mini whiteboard. And the mini whiteboard really help here because yeah. Yeah. without them, the student who's listening has to listen and try and remember yeah. what they remember. were going to say at the same time. And Large it's demand on the working memory then. Yeah. yeah. And what happens is the students just don't listen. They just yeah. wait for the student to stop talking and then they say what they were going to say. Whereas yeah. when you've got the mini whiteboard, you've kind of unburdened your working memory. So you've got capacity uh, to be able yeah. to be able to listen. Thinking and also, yeah. yeah. And also the mini whiteboards really help because they're, uh, you can kind of point to things, you can annotate, yeah. you can rub out and so yeah. on. They're, they really help yeah. that pair discussion. And you can walk around in the classroom and see what is happening. Yeah. You circulate, students write nice and big. It's really yeah. good. So then what I say is once the pair discussion's finished, is I say to the students, okay, now you've got an opportunity. If you want, you can change your answer. So if following that pair discussion, you want to change any bit of your answer, go for it. Now's a good time. Yeah. What I'm doing there is I'm watching, watching for anyone yeah. who's writing something because they're my key students. I want to know what has caused them to change their mind because that could be that they had a misconception and then some conversation happened and it unearthed it. They're my students I'm going to ask. So what I'm then going to do in the final part of the process is I'm going to say something like, Ben, I see that you changed your answer. 
What was your answer before? What have you changed it to and why? Or what I may say is, uh, put your hand up anyone who changed their mind. Okay, tell me why you changed your mind. Or I'll say, um, put your hand up if your partner said something that you found interesting. Okay, Emma, what did Sally say that you found interesting? And so on. So what I'll do is I'll use, I won't just pick a pair at random. I'm particularly interested in those students whose thinking changed as a result of that paired conversation. And that then tends to lead to the most interesting uh, discussions for me. So it's my kind of take on think pair share. The, the mini whiteboard is particularly important it's in all key, aspects. Key to, I think yeah. so. I yeah. think so. Yeah. So then we have attention and we have thinking and we have the students understand. And after that, you want them to sort of remember what they understand. <laughs> so if we sort of go into like, the concepts of spacing and interleaving or retrieval practice. How, how do you work with that? Yeah, it's the, it's the key, right? Because you can do everything yeah. we've talked about so far and then you yeah. turn up tomorrow and students have forgotten everything. Yeah, true. You, you know, you start again. Yeah. So um, I think if you get, if you do everything we've talked about so far, I think yeah. that's less likely to happen because students yeah. have just encoded it a bit more than and yeah. so on. But without retrieval opportunities, I think, yeah, it, it, we're just running a big risk. We're running yeah. a big risk. We're, we're going against everything cognitive <clears throat> science tells us about how memory works, yeah. which feels a bit risky. So I think there are four, I talk about retrieval opportunities. And I think there are four possible retrieval opportunities that we can provide our students. Yeah. So one is at the start of lessons. And often in, in England, in mathematics, the start of the lesson will be an opportunity to ask students to see if they can remember something that they've encountered in the past. Yeah. It won't necessarily be tied to today's lesson. It'll no. be something they did. A, 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 quite a good structure is a question from last lesson, a question from last week, a question from last month, a question from last year, just yeah. to make sure that that's all kind yeah, of ticking yeah. over in students' minds. Because we know every time from uh, Bjork's work, we know every yeah. time students retrieve something, they get this boost in retrieval. Yeah, yeah, storage. better and better. Yeah, exactly. So, the start of the lesson is yeah. a good time to do it. Yeah. The problem with the start of the lesson is that often students don't take it seriously. Um, I'll yeah. often say to students when I'm watching a lesson, why do you think the teacher's asking you these questions? They say, I don't know. Um, mm. Keep me busy yeah. so that whilst they do the register and so on. So if you're going to do it at the start of the lesson, students need to know the purpose of it. Yeah, why so they why take are it seriously. we doing this? Yeah. Exactly. Because if they just don't bother trying and then just copy yeah. the answers down when you go yeah. through it, you think they've done retrieval, but they haven't. Yeah. They've not actively engaged in the process. So that's the start of the lesson. Yeah. Um, another opportunity to do it is um, weaving it into the lesson. So again, yeah. this is easier done in maths than other subjects, and it's easier for certain maths concepts than others. So it's quite easy to weave decimals into yeah. lots of different areas of mathematics, put it in perimeter, put it in area, yeah, put yeah, it in solving yeah. equations, put it in angle facts. Yeah. It's a lot harder to weave rotations into yeah. the new topic that you're studying. Yeah. So this idea of interweaving, it can work really well, but it, you can't rely on it to do everything because no, you can't sure. cover every topic in maths using it. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's number two. Yeah. Number three that I'm a big fan of is a, a low stakes quiz. Yeah. So this would be once a week, once a fortnight. Yeah. There's a dedicated period of time where students are given a quiz on 10, 15 different topics that they've encountered in the past. They do it themselves. They market themselves. Teacher goes through the answers. 
again, I talk about a very kind of precise way of going through the answers where students use confidence scores and so on and so forth. But the key point from this is it's kind of a standalone retrieval opportunity that take, yeah. doesn't take, we don't have to squeeze it into five minutes at the start of the lesson. We dedicate 30 minutes, 40 minutes to this, to this retrieval yeah. opportunity. So that can work well. Yeah. Um, the problem with that is um, it takes a lot of time. It's yeah. potentially, as I say, 30 minutes where the kids aren't learning something new. And again, our, our curriculum, as I'm sure yours is, is perceived yeah. to be too yeah, full. True. Yeah. Not a lot of time to do it. So what teachers do is they cut that time down. But the problem is if you if you don't do these retrieval opportunities, students keep forgetting things and yeah. then you run out of time again and again. Yeah. And the fourth retrieval opportunity, so just to recap, we've got start of the lesson, we've got woven into the lesson, yeah. we've got low stakes quiz. The fourth yeah. one's homework. Yeah. Now, homework in theory can be the best of all these yeah. because it doesn't eat into lesson time yeah. it's it's standard how do you make how do you make it a retrieval yeah so there's a couple of things here so yeah. first it's got to be a retrieval activity yeah. and a lot of homeworks that i see are just based on the topic that students have just studied and i yeah. think that's a missed opportunity i yeah. think at least 30 40% of every homework should be retrieval yeah. should be based on things students have studied in the past so that's problem one but you yeah. can fix that you've got to change the content problem two is got to make sure the kids do the homework and yeah, again true. it's the same as same as the start of the lesson but even worse because the teacher isn't there to watch them so if students either don't do homework or copy homework yeah we can be fooled into thinking they've done retrieval yeah but who knows if they had or not yeah, so true. schools who get homework right Yeah. We get kids to take it seriously, who make it feed into the lesson. They're the ones who have this really powerful retrieval opportunity that students do at home. That can be really beneficial as well. But the bottom line is you've got to do at least one of those four. Yeah. If not, students are going to forget everything. That's yeah. going to be a big problem. I like this about low stake because I think it's necessary. But uh, how do you make sure that the students feel that it is low stakes so don't think mm, i will lose my grade on this yeah it's, it's really it's really really important um so again the messaging for the student the messaging to the students is super important in the sense that they know why you're doing it so yeah. the reason re and it's worth asking if, if any of any of your listeners just want to do a little experiment Yeah. It's worth just asking students at various points in the lesson, why do you think I'm doing this? Why am I giving you this quiz? Why am I giving you homework? Why am I... And it's yeah. scary that kids can't tell you because perhaps yeah. they've never been told why we're doing it. We assume yeah. they know, but but maybe yeah. they don't. But the stakes of the quiz are really important because to get these benefits from retrieval, we want students thinking really hard about the answers, but then we also don't want them trying to hide their lack of understanding. We want this to be formative. Yeah. So we don't want a student copying off the person next to them, or we don't want a student who's afraid to put an answer for the fear that it might be wrong. So there's a couple of things I do here. Um, the students mark them themselves. Yeah. And I never take the scores in. I never, some of the students want to tell me the scores. Great. But yeah, I don't but need to, I don't, don't need, need to know. No, I don't need to know. Yeah. This is not some high stakes summative assessment. Uh -huh. This is a low stakes formative assessment. Yeah. It's, a, it's a low stakes retrieval. Yeah. yeah. And that's so, so important. And then yeah. that removes all the incentives for yeah. students to cheat, to copy, to opt out, because what's the point? The, the, I, I don't need to know the scores, no. but that's a big thing, particularly again for maths teachers, because yeah. We love data. We love them. <laughs> yeah, like it, put it in a spreadsheet. It looked yeah. brilliant, right? We've got all this data. What? We're just going to throw it away. 
Yeah. Oh, it looked brilliant in a spreadsheet, but what's the point? As soon yeah. as you start collecting that data, the incentives change, and all of a yeah. sudden, students stop being completely honest yeah. with yeah. you. That's, that's a problem. So, yeah, and managing the stakes is important. Integrate the stress systems and sort of hamper learning. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. Another question, if we go back to the Bjorks, uh, they talk a lot about desirable difficulties. Uh, how do you make uh, difficulties desirable in a lesson? Sort of, you, you, I, I think you could look at math like a strength training session or something. How do, sort of, how do you organize it to make uh, the students feel you want to have difficulties, but how do you make them desirable in a, sort of a way that they would like to continue? Yeah, I, th I think when I reading the Bjork's work on yeah. this was one of the most seminal moments for me, because yeah. what I realized, I think, was that a lot of my teaching for many years made learning difficult, but not in a desirable way. Because yeah. if we go back to things that we talked about at the start, there was a lot yeah. of extraneous load, which makes learning difficult, but not in a useful way. I think... I didn't break down topics as much as I should have done. I didn't assess prerequisite knowledge like we talked about before, which all of which made learning something new harder, but yeah. not in a use, not in a useful way at all. I'm also very, very careful on how I use problem solving in, in yeah. mathematics. It'd be something that I, and I get, I get a lot of criticism in, in England for this. Um, I want to make sure my students have a certain level of fluency and competency before I start mixing things up, before I start challenging them to conjecture, to reason yeah, and yeah. so on. Because again, just if, if I don't do that, I'm expecting them to do reasoning with something that they're not particularly secure. They don't with. have sort I of the just, tools to use for yeah, it. Yeah. I just don't, don't think it, don't think it yeah. works too well. So yeah, that will be how I try and make, things difficult and it goes back to what we talked about before this misconception of cognitive load theory cognitive yeah, load theory yeah. doesn't say we should reduce cognitive load at all no no it says we should optimize cognitive yeah. load by making sure we reduce the extraneous stuff to leave room for the good stuff yeah. and then once students become more capable we yeah. then change that load so they you know do more independent things expertise reversal effect and, and so on and so forth so yeah. that'd be one thing i do and then also I think the most, for me, the most significant desirable difficulty is is spacing and interleaving. It's it's providing these opportunities for kids to revisit things they've encountered in the past, and mm. also making sure that lessons aren't always just nice tidy little units where we only do one thing. That I might just throw in a decimal. Yeah, I might yeah, throw in a negative. When up, I do a low yeah. when I do a low stakes quiz, the reason I'm doing it is firstly to provide retrieval opportunities, but also students, so students can practice switching. They can practice going from question one on straight line graphs to question yeah. two on circle theorems like yeah, that. Yeah. Because if students can't do that switching in lessons, yeah. can't do it in exams. Yeah. So yeah, I think all of the desirable difficulties, I think are super practical to bring into lessons if you just yeah, careful, yeah. How, careful how you do it. Yeah. It's your experience that... Uh... That teachers do enough of retrieval practice. I think uh, many teachers, uh, I mean, they, they love to teach. So they they sort of tend to spend uh, most of the time to, to teach and not, uh, not sort of have this as part of their sort of... Uh, their system. It, it's... I don't know. I try to, to ask uh, a lot of researchers also about 
how much should it be? And they, they can't say it, it should be in, but it's you must try out how should, sort of percentage teaching maybe. Should it be 80, 90% and 10, 20 or? Yeah, I think I can only speak from my experience yeah, in the UK, yeah, but yeah. I think over the last, say, five, six years, yeah, it is the norm now in the vast majority of classrooms I visit. Yeah that retrieval practice is an important part of most yeah. lessons. It's very yeah. rare that I'll go into a lesson and there'll be either no retrieval practice in that lesson yeah. or if it's not in that lesson, yeah. it'll be because we did it last lesson or we're going to do it next yeah, lesson. Yeah, so it is it's always, support. it's there. Yeah. It's there. Yeah. 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 And I think it's, it's one of the findings from research that has really found its way into the classroom. And it's yeah. really, really prominent. But again, I can only speak for England and I can only yeah. speak yeah. For, um, for, for, for mathematics. Right. Yeah. I still think though, I think you're onto something here that teachers don't particularly enjoy the retrieval aspects. Kids don't no. particularly enjoy the retrieval aspects. No. So the no, reason students tough. don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. The reason students don't like yeah, is it's yeah. a desirable difficulty. Yeah. You know, it's not nice to try and remember no, something no. you did a year ago. I think there's two reasons the teachers don't like it. Number one is because teaching new stuff's more fun than revisiting yeah. old yeah, stuff. For sure. And also, this I've experienced this myself. When your kids can't do something that you've taught them in the past, it makes you feel pretty bad. You think, well, yeah, yeah, something, yeah, something's true. gone wrong. Yeah. Something's gone wrong there. Yeah. So I'd, I'd perhaps rather not even, you know, find that yeah. out. But I, so I think there's probably an argument that teachers could do more retrieval practice, yeah. but certainly it's one of the most, ple- I, very rarely, I mean, I very rarely give talks where I have to start talking about no. spacing and interviewing no. now because no. it's just, it's so embedded in classroom practice. Yeah, and I think good. that's a lot to do with um, Bob and Elizabeth's work yeah. at the Bjorks. I think it's a lot to do with Dylan Williams' work. It's yeah. just, it's the norm now, which is yeah. which is really yeah. good to see. Which is good, yeah. My, my last question then, if you should change, now you're not a teacher anymore, you're a principal for school. What, what would you do? What would be important things to do to give the best conditions ever for the teachers or for the students of course to to succeed if you should yeah, so my... run your own school and you could decide <laughs> exactly how it should be done yeah it's interesting do? so in my current role now i i visit three or four different schools every single yeah. week yeah i see schools in very different contexts yeah. um, and i always try and make some time to speak to the head teacher to the principal yeah. because i'm really interested in in some of the things that that, that that they've done so yeah so this is this is a really interesting question it's a good one to end on this because it's quite current so in yeah. the in england um last week so we're recording this at the end of october yeah. um a thing called the Progress 8 Provisional Figures came out. And what Progress 8 is, it's a measure of essentially how much value a high school adds to students' attainment from when they join at age 11 to when they leave at, at age 16. Yeah. And what's been published now is every school's Progress 8 figure. So yeah. zero is the norm. Zero yeah. is, okay, your students, on average, made expected progress yeah. over yeah. the course of the five years that they were with you. Um, the highest you would ever get is, well, anything above one is amazing, basically. Because yeah. that's saying that on average, your students have got one whole grade higher than we would expect them to get. Yeah. And, and it's probably Excellent. bound to yeah. some, yeah, it's, it's amazing, right? And then again, of course, this is a normal distribution. So on yeah. the other end of get, we've got some schools who are negative one. And yeah, so on yeah. And so forth. for sure. 
So what I spent some time doing is looking at the top 50 schools for yeah. Progress 8 and seeing if I could spot anything in common. And my first instinct was a lot of these schools favor traditional teaching, favor explicit instruction, yeah. favor high standards for behavior and so yeah. on. And I think that is a trend. That's something. But I was uh, interviewing somebody for my podcast two yeah. days ago, and I'm just yeah. releasing it today, Mark McCourt. And he had a different take on it. And he said that wasn't how he read it. What he looked at when he saw the schools was that every single one of them in that top 50 yeah. had a really strong shared values and shared principles. Yeah. So every one of those schools, if you said to a so teacher... You could say it, they have high collect collective efficacy. Then. Exactly yeah. it. So if you said to any of their teachers, what does this school stand for? Yeah. They'd be able to tell you. Yeah. And more importantly, if you said to any of the students, yeah. what does this stand for? they'd be able they to tell you. So yeah. it could be it could be a faith school. It could be a religious school. Yeah. So it could be a Christian yeah. school, yeah. a Muslim school, and they perhaps base their shared values around some religious doctrine. Yeah. Or it could be a school like Michaela, where yeah. their aspirations, their high aspirations, their insistence on perfection is going yeah. to be the shared value that everyone gets around. Whereas when I visit some of the schools that I give support in who perhaps are struggling a bit, yeah, if I ask a teacher, what does this school stand for? Yeah. Hmm. I can't really say. Oh. So I think if I was advising a principal yeah. about how to improve teaching and learning, yeah. there's lots of things we can do in the yeah. classroom. Yeah. There's lots of practical things. Yeah. But one thing I think to kind of really bear in mind is what are our shared values and principles? Yeah. How can I make sure my staff buy into this? Yeah. And then how can we get the kids to buy into this? And yeah. I think that I think that'd be a That's sense. A key. Yeah. yeah. I think so. So interesting. Perfect finish of this. And it's a really great talking to you and, and a good learning opportunity for me as well. And for sure, for all the listeners and viewers. So thank you so much. Oh, no, my pleasure. Well, when I saw your previous guest list and all the people you had on, I thought I'm a bit out of my depth here, but I've, uh, I've really <laughs> enjoyed the conversation. So yeah. thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Thank you.